It's Dan Curtis with you on Brooklyn's Radio, and I'm delighted to say joining me on the line is author James Crooks, author of uh, Do They Know It's Christmas Yet? and other things too. Uh, hi, James. How are you? Hello. I'm very well. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, you're more than welcome. So um, you've been well, you've been a writer for a long time, uh, really, but you've only, uh, just ventured into novels quite recently, really, with these couple of books that you've got out so far. That's right. Yeah. The first one was published in 2020. So um, it's the first time I, I published a novel. Um, I had, as you said, I've been writing for some time, but that was sort of speculatively. I've managed to have a bit of success with telly and things, but nothing massive. Uh, I've had a few uh, sketches on, on BBC One and all these sorts of things, a bit of CBBS, CBBC, but um, predominantly I, I produce a radio show and, and sort of co-host that. Um, but for a long time, I've been trying to pitch this story. Uh, to TV execs who all said it seems very expensive and who the hell are you, which is fair enough. Um, so then I thought about pitching the story to publishers and then I thought I'm, I'm a bit tired of people telling me why something needs tweaking, changing, amending. And then they generally, in my experience, they leave. They leave the publishing house or they leave the production company. So I thought I'm just going to publish it myself independently, um, which is what I did in 2020. But it was a, it was a while writing it. I mentioned um, I mentioned to my children that uh, I was going to be talking to you, and I mentioned the CBBS and CBBC link, which led to a barrage of Did he do this? Did he do that? Does he know this? No, does he know? Well, Andy? I didn't do horrible histories, if that's the question. <laughs> sadly, uh, I do know the producer of that, but no, I didn't do that. No, it was a while ago. There was a, an educational uh, slot called Class TV, but also I did a lot for uh, I think it was called Look and Read. So it was I was pushed into an educational sort of arena but it was comedy that I was writing fair enough uh, so let's get into the books then so uh, the first one as you said published in 2020 do they know it's Christmas yet uh, which I think just from the title kind of gives you an idea of at least the period in which it's set if not <laughs> what yeah, it's absolutely. all about um, yeah. I don't want to spoil anything because I think people need to read these books but just to give us a flavor what what are the books about well, I was a teenager in the 80s, and so there were glory years. And I, I work with people now who were teenagers in the 90s, so I understand that depending on when your formative years were, it kind of defines the era that you think is classic music. But regardless of that, I think um, the, the years of 84, 85 were pretty golden in terms of pop music. So I've got sort of great memories of them. But also I remember when Band-Aid was formed, uh, me and my schoolmates just could not believe that all these these bands who were constantly slagging one another off in Smash Hits magazine and Number One magazine would all get together and record a single. And we, we were at school saying, no, nah, it can't be right. The, the Gerannis won't go with the Spandau crowd and George Michael and Andrew Ridgely and Culture Club. There's no way, Frankie. No, 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 no. Now, obviously, not all, all of those artists appeared on on the song. But when they did, I remember us all thinking, it's rubbish. This song's rubbish because we were so used to sort of pure pop music um, and because it was a, a different style. Mm. Um, and we were convinced it was just going to crash and burn. Then we saw the video and it was it was it was life changing for us. But also at the time and hindsight shown as hindsight is is great, but also it started the cancel culture. So regardless of what your opinions of of Band-Aid and, and how successful it ultimately was, at the time, 
everyone felt they were doing something worthy and something good. And it felt good to be part of a team. But it also changed pop music. Um, and it all happened because Bob Geldof saw a news report, a very famous Michael Burke news report uh, set in, in Ethiopia about the famine. Uh, and that story ran because uh, apparently it was a low news day. They'd had that in the bank for a while at the BBC. And they said, well, there's nothing really big today with the government or whatever, or America and the um, the, the nuclear threat um let's put that ethiopia piece out so i believe they led the news it was very early on in the news and bob geldof saw it uh and and wept um and his his autobiography says that he watched it with paula yates his his girlfriend at the time i think they married the following year i think um and they had a child and he said he wept because of of uh, of the sheer horror of the famine. So not getting too deep, the book isn't about that. But I've always wondered since then, what if he'd never seen it? What if he hadn't seen that news report? We wouldn't be singing, do they know it's Christmas, feed the world every Christmas because it's it's lasted. It's really lasted. Mm. Uh, I work in radio, as as do you, and you know that that comes around from November every yeah. year. It's 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 still flying, and it was the best-selling song of the year. So I, I wanted to start with a premise of what if he hadn't seen it? Um, and initially I thought it'd be great if someone else realised they wanted to do it and failed. But I couldn't really write stories about Nick Kershaw knocking on Howard Jones' door or Bananarama saying, I've got an idea. It was just too messy. So I thought the best thing to do would be to have two time travellers from 2020 accidentally going back to the day one of them was born um and knocking him over and then realizing when they then see the news report of ethiopia it's immediately followed with news that bob geldof has been in hospital all afternoon because he's been knocked down by some strange i don't know moped which they realize is their fault so they've got to put it right so the premise of the book is how how do you refix that line in history um and also would you bother because the the female protagonist she's just, they're both in their 30s uh she is a new mum and all she wants to do is get back to 2020 rather than hang around in 84 which she thinks is a bit disastrous and faded and um you know it's a bit of a, a dull time compared to hers but essentially her dilemma is do i get home to my baby or do i feed a million others mm. it's um <laughs> well, as you say it's it's an interesting concept with the time traveling uh, business so it's always they're always quite tricky and and you know there's not more than a passing nod towards uh, a certain film that would have come out the next year back to the future yeah uh, absolutely in fact, it's sort of mentioned a couple of times isn't it and and to, well to how the can you can't yeah you can't write about something without nodding to uh to things that have gone before and this isn't sci-fi uh i originally um I originally launched the book with a beautiful cover that um, a, a friend of mine, a graphic designer, created for me. And um, within six months, I realized that the cover was also important for a story like this because he hadn't read it yet. And he created a sort of an 80s spectrum computer type front. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I was appealing to um, a lot of sci-fi um, fans. Uh, which isn't a problem, but the book is not sci-fi at all. It's zero Doctor Who. It is more sort of a, a 2020 version, as it was published, of um, people have said Back to the Future crossed with the royal family because 
there's no pretense. People just say things as they see them. And if something is absurdly like Back to the Future, they say it. Um, I wanted it to be as authentic as possible, which is a weird thing to say, isn't it? Given <laughs> they travel back in time on a on an old Sinclair C5. But um, that was it. Yeah, I wanted it to be as real as possible. Yeah, one of the things I love about it is, is well, there's two things really. One, one is that um, that mixture of you know somebody from today and you know the conversations we have with our children constantly about you know I, I would prefer to have had my time in the 80s and your time now and trying yes. to explain and, and sort of then seeing the characters kind of live that and, and have that experience of you know they know what life is like in 2020 yeah and, and that hit me actually because I think in pretty much the first page you mentioned COVID and lockdown yes and I hadn't expected to see that. I don't know why, but yeah. it hadn't really occurred to me that the first thing I'd be thinking about is is the moment I, you know, I was living at that point. And so seeing that, um, you know, them them sort of work work through the the differences between you know their life in 2020 and and life in 1984, but I also love the fact that you sort of do blend in these things that were going on at the time, and you give these little bits of detail about you know what was happening with with uh, america and russia and so it sort of becomes part of one of those nostalgic documentaries that you see on channel five often about you know we love 1984 but yes, it gives you yeah. just enough information to go oh yeah i remember that now and i remember how that affected that um, and, and i just think that that was a really clever device in terms of setting that scene thank you very much yeah it's well i remember being uh terrified that there was going to be a nuclear war when I was a teenager I was terrified of it because um now with with COVID and I have kids when the first news broke you do feel you need to take a bit of time after to sit down with your children and give it some context um to reassure them um because I I grew up in as I say 84 I remember watching I think it was Panorama or World in Action or one of these shows my dad was watching it and they showed the Protect and Survive film which is a little clip of that is on the beginning of Two Tribes by Frankie Goes to Hollywood Um, when you hear the air attack warning you and your family must take cover and my dad was just watching it half, half looking at from his newspaper and he was just indifferent whereas I was absolutely petrified and I was so proud that I couldn't tell him I was it was only a few days later he realized I was quiet and I remember saying I'm a bit worried about this thing and he went it's never going to happen it's never going to happen but kids didn't necessarily have those conversations with their parents so it was a really scary time Uh, but I realized with hindsight if you're over 20 you probably had a a a better grasp on it but Mm. there are parallels between what teenagers were scared of then and what teenagers might be fearful of now Um, and also with that in, in mind, if I wanted to see what it was like for 2020 people going back to 1984, and I know I've said the brother and sister, but they're very much adults and the language, I think, reflects that. Um, it was what they would think of it. But because of, of COVID and what was happening, they were able to drop little anecdotes about modern day life to this sort of pseudo family that they bond with who couldn't believe that the street parties didn't happen for for the um jubilee and all these events that would have happened and and explaining social distancing to someone in 1984 was uh it's all done with humor great humor i'm not expecting anyone to feel um anxious or sad about it but it's just the absurdity of it all yeah absolutely so the family then move on and into the second book which is um have you stole a million yet or have they stole a million did yet? they steal a million yet yeah yes. I, I made a I bit of a run for me i should have just read it really off the top. have you 
Oh, really? Have you, I'll, not, I'll not question you on it, but thank you very much for reading it. Um, yes, I didn't know what to call the first book um, because there was all sorts of things that coming in my head, but I just thought, I just need to say what it is. Do they know it's Christmas yet? Which you said uh, sort of hopefully piques your interest and thinks, I know, I know the song, what's the question about? So I, I was stuck with the yet on the front of the cover, and I thought, oh, I'm going to have to put yet in the second book. So did they steal a million yet? It's no reference to any song or anything on the telly at the time. It's more about the story that, that occurs. But the first book does end satisfactorily. It, it does end, um, it's a complete book. Um, but I enjoyed spending time with these characters so much, and I knew that there were lots of questions from book one that I don't necessarily fully answer in the second book. Um, but, yeah, did they steal a million yet was um, basically starts right where the first book ends with a dilemma that they have accidentally created when they went back to 1984 and and they don't find out until later on in time um so it means going back and doing something slightly absurd which is um trying to steal a million pounds for very good reasons um so, but they're normal people they're you they're me they're they're anyone listening that what, you know, crikey, I've got to go back and steal a million pounds from the Paul Daniels Christmas show at BBC TV Centre. It's absurd. Um, but I loved researching it. I managed to talk to some um, uh, scene builders and, and painters from the time uh, and also a number of people that worked in TV Centre. So it actually walks through a lot of the story, goes through the corridors around the back of of um, Blue Peter and the um a sports personality of the year show or sports review of the year um, and things that were happening at the time, including the, the Paul Daniels magic show where they, Paul Daniels made a, a million pounds disappear in front of Robert Maxwell and a studio audience. Um, and there were press releases and there were newspaper articles that it was about to fail before they'd even started to record the show because when the million pounds arrived, the safe was just a little bit too wide to go around the corridors of TV centre. That's true. That's a fact. Whether or not that was just a press stunt at the time, I decided I'd let that sit there because it was just too beautiful a concept to ignore. Uh, and staff were told uh, to go from the Securicore van or whatever the van was, shove money in their pockets as casually as they could and walk through TV centre to the studio so they could reassemble it in a slightly smaller safe. So I thought with, if that's going on um, and uh, if someone knows about that, then they can, they can possibly do a little switch of the money somewhere. So it's absurd. It is, but brilliant. And you also, you spent um, some time with, with Paul Daniel's son, uh, sort of researching him as well. So. That's right. I believe it was Gary. I know he's got a few sons. Mm. Uh, it was only a chat and some emails, um, but I wanted to make sure that um, because they would have been teenagers when it was being filmed, I wanted to check a when it was recorded, which I was able to find out. It was very close to Christmas. It was sort of the week or two before. I can't imagine anyone recording a Christmas show now so close because the Radio Times had already been printed. Mm. What happens if it hadn't happened? But yes, it was filmed in December, and. Um, I wanted to check that, that the studios were correct and also if they had been to see him and he said he had, his kids would have been teenagers, they were in the audience and one of them plays a part in this book uh, and also what car he drove because I had heard he loved Bentleys but I, I spoke with his son who told me at the time he had a, a Jaguar XJS in a, a specially um, specified two-tone gold or something. I can't remember the specifics of the book mm. uh, but that's in there as well. 
Brilliant. Uh, so, and then now, now they're moving on again. So you've got a, another book. They are. Thing. Well, yeah. I mean, the the second one. Um, did they steal a million yet? Again, I I did end it. I wanted people to know they could step out at any time. Mm. Um, but the third one um, answers a few more questions. But until the editors confirm that we're all right for a, a release date, I don't want to say anything because uh, people have sort of put pre-orders and um, sign up for mailers on my on my website, which people can still do if I can give them that. Yeah, Jamescrooks.com. Um, James Crooks, Crooks with an E dot com, and you can sign up if you want some information or just read a bit more about the books there. But that would be that would be great. I'd be delighted if anyone wanted to to, to get involved. Fabulous. So, so no spoilers yet about you know what adventures they are, but presumably still set in the time sort of time period. It is set in the time period. They come up with another dilemma, um, which essentially actually pushes them uh, into the summertime uh, of nineteen eighty five. And uh, they might be going overseas. Let's just put it that that far. Oh, okay. it's, no, it's not America, but there's a little bit of live aid in there. Right, <laughs> fair enough. How far do you think this goes? Have you got sort of plots for other books? Have you do you sort of see this running a bit longer? Or well, uh, yeah, I, I started writing this third book uh, in January this year, um, and within about a month, I realised um, I was writing the fourth book which was a bit of a shame. So that's already, yes, I do. There's certainly a fourth one uh, that I'd like to write to, to tie up some of the loose ends, the big questions really about some of the characters. Um, but um, it, it does take a hell of a long time. And this third book is, it's about 50% longer than the others as well. So, um, so yeah, it takes a lot of time, a lot of editing, um, but yeah, it, it is a labor of love. And I mean, I've seen this a lot on Twitter, uh, and it, and it, they do seem to lend themselves. And you mentioned it at the beginning that you know this started as an idea, a concept for TV or for film. Do you do we think we're going to see them on the TV at some point? Or uh, I hope so. I mean, a lot of people have I have seen. I think that, that I I wanted these to be sort of cinematic or like a screenplay because there's a lot there's a lot of dialogue in them, which I love writing. They're quite dialogue heavy. Um, and there's also a lot of background music, which I put in there just to set a scene of what's playing in the background or, or what's on a poster, what's on the cover of a magazine. Um, so it is very much, uh, a, a, I think, a film or a, a TV show that you read in your head, if that makes sense. It's not scripts, don't get me wrong. You can read it like a novel. Um, but I was approached by um, a broadcaster in, in the uh, spring of this year, to um to ask if the rights were available he's a uk uh, broadcaster and producer it wasn't channel five so i was absolutely blown away i thought yes finally here we go um and um we realized that um there were a few differences in opinion in in how we would go about it um so we're back not to square one i am talking with someone else at the moment uh, but i i can't talk about that but um no fair enough no i'd love to i'm so excited about it but um these things always take far longer than you hope. But uh, fingers crossed, I'd love to see it on the screen. Absolutely. I've got everything perfectly pictured in my brain. Who, who can play what and, and where they would film it. But, um, yeah, fingers crossed. Well, you'll just have to come on again when, we, when we're a bit nearer with those things moving forward. And, um, yeah, happily. Tell us how close they are to what's in your head. <laughs> right I would now. love to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Ah, oh, brilliant. Uh, James, yeah, I do. I do recommend these to anybody to have a look. They're really good read. They're, they're real page turners. They are, you do want to sort of see what, what is going on next. So we're very pleased to hear that the story is going to continue. And, and in terms of that sort of nostalgia, and, you know, similarly, I was, I was nine 
in October '84 when when that, right. uh, um, you know when the first book is set. Um, and yeah, all of all of the sort of mentions of, of music and and the pop culture stuff, uh, yeah, you know, and and things that you've forgotten that you even remembered, which is brilliant. Um, so yeah, do do check out these books um, if if you get the chance, um, and can't wait for the new one. When when do we think maybe it's going to be? I'm hoping it's going to be at the very start of November. Uh, okay. So it's imminent. Uh, I'm just, I literally was chasing someone last night so that I could tell you more today. Um, but I, I don't want to give you misinformation, that's all. But I'm, I'm delighted that you're interested and, and, and it's a privilege to be invited on to talk about it. So thank you very much. No problem at all. Keep, keep us posted on, uh, I will. on uh, dates. Obviously, we'll keep an eye on Twitter and, and things like that as well. So uh, and look forward to the next instalment and the next instalment uh, when that much. comes down the line. Thank you. It's lovely to talk with you, Dan. Thanks for having me on. And James's new book, Wish You Were Here Yet, is out on the 8th of November. Uh, check that out if you can. You can find out more information at his website, jamescrooks.com. Uh, of course, you can find him on Twitter and all the usual places. Many thanks once again to James for coming on uh, to tell you all about it. I cannot wait to read the next one. Mm-hmm.